Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. On today's episode 17, we will cover two cases. And in the third segment, we will cover a number of decisions that have come out in recent days over cases that we've discussed on prior episodes of the podcast. The first case for today is NCAA versus various insurers, which the Indiana Supreme Court heard recently. And it involves an antitrust claim seeking payment of athletes and whether separate lawsuits relate to each other pursuant to a claims-made policy. And we'll talk more about the word relate to uh, when we talk about that case. Uh, And as we've talked about with other insurance interpretation cases, uh, wording and terms make a difference. The second case we'll discuss today is Kellel versus Lyons, a medical malpractice case that was recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District. And as noted in the third segment, we will briefly discuss decisions in Katz versus Hartz, G&G versus Continental, Chilino versus Simon, Zuniga versus Major League Baseball, Maine versus ADM, and Bennett versus AFSCME, all cases we discussed in prior episodes of the podcast. As noted, uh, the first case today is the NCAA case. The NCAA filed this lawsuit. Which seems appropriate we do that this week is, uh, you know, the, the NCAA tournament started this week. So this seems like uh, it's, a, I, I think the uh, Indiana Supreme Court had a bit of a sense of humor setting the uh, setting the argument uh, just before the tournament. I, I think they did. And unlike the VCU team that had to give up because of COVID, I think that the, the Indiana Supreme Court will actually uh, play ball. So they, they, they will decide. Well, they may not. Well, they may, they not. may not. May not. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yep. The the peculiarities of Indiana Supreme Court petitions. In any event, the, the NCAA in this case filed this lawsuit seeking coverage from several insurers for an antitrust claim that student athletes made against the NCAA in 2014. The Marion Superior Court granted the insurer's motion for summary judgment. The Court of Appeals affirmed, concluding that the primary insurance policies related wrongful acts exclusion applies and barred coverage where a similar claim had been made against the NCAA years before in 2014 in National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Ace American Insurance, which was an Indiana Court of Appeals case from 2020. Uh, The NCAA petitions this court to accept jurisdiction over the appeal. And as noted, this is an insurance coverage case for the NCAA's alleged antitrust violation and restricting payment of players. On March 11th, the Indiana Supreme Court heard argument in NCAA versus Ace American Insurance Company et al. The appellate court ruled that the 2006 case was a related wrongful act to a 2014 case that raised a similar issue and held there was no insurance coverage. Among the issues in this case are a claim that the term related is ambiguous and indeed whether transfer should be granted by the high court at all. As we discussed in episode 12 and and has been alluded to by Pat already, the Indiana Supreme Court hears oral argument in addition to briefing on whether it should even hear a case. Uh, And what seems odd to me, Pat, uh, when I listen to these arguments is the court 
does not spend much time about whether transfer stuff should be granted or uh, they spend, it, it's kind of all intertwined in, in, in the mix. It would seem, uh, you know, from a logical perspective that they would hit it head on and that would be the main issue, but that's not how Indiana deals with these cases. So Dan, why don't we uh, start with, you know, where you just left off. Uh, you're right. The court didn't address it very much, but counsel for the Apple yeah. opened up and said, you guys shouldn't take this case. Uh, that was his, that was his first line. Um, and he gave them reasons why they shouldn't take the case. Uh, and then he went into the substance of, of the, of the argument. Uh, the, the issue as Dan alluded to is whether the term related is ambiguous. What does it mean for one thing to relate to another? So there's two sets of lawsuits alleging antitrust violation and this particular antitrust violation against the NCAA, because there are many, right. uh, relates to the payment of athletes uh, and whether they can restrict. Uh, first, there was the grant and aid, the, the incompleteness of the grant and aid program in the 2006 and that they it didn't actually cover everything right. that uh, the scholarship was supposed to, the, the cost of education. And what, then what, the, yeah, one of, one of the things that happens in NCAA with scholarships is that they often don't fully cover room and board. And so that, I think, was that argument in that case. One of the bylaws talked about what money could be used for. It was. And then the, and then in 2014, it was more head-on with, can you restrict what they get at all? Uh, in other words, can you pay players to come play for your school? Can you give them, you know, give uh, special privileges um, to go back, uh, you know, back, at, back in the day, they had, take the University of Kentucky, for example, they had... Uh, they had uh, the Wildcat Lodge. That's where the players lived, and they had special eating facilities and special living arrangements and all these kinds of things. And years ago, the out, the NCAA outlawed that uh, because you could basically the students had to be like the other students. Now, what kind of farce is that? Anyone that's ever been at, at on the campus of a big time university that's playing athletics, uh, particularly men's basketball and football, uh, to think that these that those athletes are in uh, going to the same school that everyone else is going to is uh, somebody smoking something. And I want some, cause that's some good stuff. Uh, you know, it, going back to my, my football playing days, I played in division three and we, we had the same obligations in terms of 40 hours a week of practice and stuff. I once wrote a, a, a letter to Rick Tellender who was at the sports illustrated and we had a, an ongoing debate. He wrote me back and I, I think part of my letter got published at one time. My, my view was always, you know, as a Division three athlete with no ath athletic scholarships that, you know, I, I get the argument why you would want to be paid. But again, you, you, you do get a lot of benefits, as you note, and you get uh, a lifetime supply of, of, of uh, shoes and gloves and, and shorts. You get uh, uh, great uh, dining facilities. You get the opportunity to get a, a top notch education for free at, at these prestigious universities. Right. It, 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 and so then the, so, but this is what the NCAA, because they do have, I mean, the argument is, is that they have the market in, uh, in collegiate athletics, that there are other entities to be sure. There's the NAIA, there's, you know, there's, I think there, there there's the NCCAA, which is the Christian colleges, there's other entities, but th th they have the market. Right. And so then the question becomes, what uh, do they have to pay them if they don't want to? And certainly states have stepped into that. California, Florida, Colorado, other states have stepped in. 
sure. uh, to deal with this and allow and and which just creates a hodgepodge where certain schools would would have advantages over others depending upon what state they were in and what compensation players could get not only for playing but also for um, but also for their likeness and image both while they're in school and after they leave. Yep. And then you also then implicate Title IX issues because while there's money perhaps to pay the men's men's basketball and football players at most places, there's very few places to pay outside of Tennessee and Connecticut the women's basketball players, for example. Right. right. Um, the, it used to be they 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 used to use the term revenue and non-revenue sports, and there were only two revenue sports at most places that weren't, as I said, Connecticut and Tennessee. And they've got they've gotten rid of that. They've referred to the Olympic sports uh, as distinct from men's basketball and football, as if basketball isn't a, it's an Olympic sport. It is played in the Olympics. It is for um, sure. Not by college athletes anymore, as it turns out. But so maybe in that regard, it's not an Olympic sport. But that's the distinction they've made in order not to be a pejorative against the vast majority of all the other athletes. You guys don't make any money. You're a drag on the system. Uh, but at most places, not even the big, not even at the big places. Are they actually making money on football, enough money on basketball, men's basketball, football to fund the rest of the athletic department? There are some. There's a handful, maybe a maybe, handful. maybe a couple dozen. If Nebraska, Notre Dame, there's Florida, it's very rare. Very few. It is a it is about the branding of the university because people are going to give money to the football program, but not to the chemistry department. It turns out right. Uh, right. They, they want a new wide receiver and a place for him to play. But they don't care if the kid gets a new beaker. Okay. Yeah. That's just the reality of the situation. So that's that and and understand that we're not making we're not talking about it like this because it's funny, and it is, but that's the position of the insurers. The, the lawyer for the insurers stood there and said, Hey, the NCAA knew this was a crock. They continue to do it despite it being a crock. We shouldn't have to insure it. That's essentially his. That's one of their arguments. Is of course it was related because they knew what they were doing was wrong. It was a violation of the anti of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and yet they continued to do it and try and to find ways to justify it. Yeah, he hammered on that constantly. He he, he did, and, and so that really raises arguments regarding it, Indiana law is not as developed in this area as, as Illinois is with regards to prematurity. But do you really want these insurers to be defending you in cases where they've stood in front of the Indiana Supreme Court and said, hey, uh, our, our insured over here is violating federal law left, right, and center and has been doing it for decades, uh, and uh, we're going to defend them, though? It, it really raised questions in my mind about that issue. But And then the other issue that came up more substantively with regards to related, Indiana has an, is an outlier. As it, as it relates to the pollution exclusion. And there's a reason why that is. And the reason why that is, is because just like New Jersey relative to New York, Indiana relative to Chicago is where all the waste went. All the dirty stuff that they didn't want to do in the city, but needed to be done near the city, got done in Indiana and New Jersey. There's a reason why all the, there's Superfund sites in those two states, and in particular, the two parts that sit next to Chicago and New York. Not a surprise. So when they needed to start uh, cleaning these things up, uh, the Indiana court said, oh, we know where to find the money. We're just going to say no pollution exclusion, and the insurance companies are going to have to pay for all this super fun stuff. I have been to sites, uh, some of the steel mills in Indiana, uh, you know, in the restricted areas where the accidents have occurred. It's like a moonscape. 
it's it's like you left and went to the moon. There is nothing green for as long as you as far as you can see. It's barren. It's unbelievable. It's it's just stark and it smells. Um, so but this pollution exclusion was how the NCAA, through their lawyers, trying to argue that, hey, Indiana's taking a different view of these things, a very expansive, favorable view to insurers. Hey, you should do the same thing here and help the NCAA out as if they're some poor entity that can't take care of itself and didn't know, didn't have lawyers to tell them what to do, this kind of a thing. Yep. I, I, I don't know how well that's going to go for them uh, and whether the court will end up even taking transfer. But uh, that was the, the sum and substance of the argument. Dan, do you have anything else before we move on? I agree with you, and we'll we'll talk about it in predictions. But yeah, I think uh, I think the insurers might have uh, uh, some issues in this case. All right, and with that, we'll take our first break. We're back on episode seventeen of the Podium and Panel podcast for segment two, and we're going to talk about. Kellal versus Lions. Uh, Dan, why don't you set this up for us? Thanks, Pat. And this is a case alleging medical malpractice against doctors. An expert in the case uh, had filed a report that WES testing, West testing would be beneficial. And the trial court ordered the same for the parents who were representative plaintiffs for the minor child. And also the parents were uh, plaintiffs uh, in connection with the family uh, Medical Expenses Act uh, lawsuit that they'd filed as well. The plaintiffs' appellants argued that the Supreme Court Rule 215 did not come into play because the parents were not subject to the two classes that 215 covers, a party that placed their condition in controversy and a person under control of the party that placed their condition in controversy. The plaintiffs argued that they had not placed medical condition at issue of themselves uh, and this was in front of the appellate court on an abusive standard basis. And Rule 215 is similar to the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, Rule 35. It's physical and mental examination of parties and other persons. And it says in any action in which the physical or mental condition of a party or of a person in the party's custody or legal control is in controversy, the court, upon notice and on motion made within a reasonable time before the trial, may order such party to submit to a physical or mental examination by a licensed professional in a discipline related to the physical or mental condition which is involved. One of the items that was discussed much at all argument was the Illinois Family Expense Statute, which provides that the husband and wife are liable for the expenses of the family, whether they are incurred by minors or by other family members under a legal disability. It's at 750 OCS 65-15. And since it is the parent's obligation to pay for the medical, hospital, and funeral expenses incurred by the family members, the right to a cause of action for reimbursement of these expenses is held by the parents and not the child. Uh, and there was uh, a lot of discussion about uh, the fact that if, if uh, that hook, the Illinois Family Expense Statute, was what would bring the parents to have to give uh, their samples under the West test, then they would probably drop that cause of action. Pat, the other thing that was discussed and we, we talked about prior to the show uh, that was asked by one of the justices was, was uh, Dobert, which, which seemed odd given that the Illinois is, Illinois is a Fry statute. So, Pat, why don't you tell us about the oral arguments and what is case, this case of first impression in Illinois 
and discuss a few other cases from other jurisdictions, as well as a suggestion by the panel that the child be tested first. So, Dan, thank you very much. And, I, and I've got a lot to say on this one because this case raises a ton of issues. So let's start with the first issue. That wasn't discussed because it was took for, taken for granted. But for those that aren't entered in, that aren't familiar with Illinois procedure, Illinois is a bit different in this regard. We talked about Indiana being a bit different on getting cases to feder- to uh, the Indiana Supreme Court. This was a appeal of what is an otherwise interlocutory discovery order, and you don't get you don't you know Illinois practitioners kind of take for granted we know how this happened, but it isn't referred to until the very end of the argument when counsel for the plaintiff says, I ask you to reverse the trial court and to, and to vacate the order of contempt against me. Right. That's how it got there. Ladies and gentlemen, is he took a contempt. In other words, it's called a friendly contempt in Illinois. It's what makes it appealable. Otherwise this order would not be reviewable and you would, and you'd be go through the whole, I mean, people would be sent to jail. I mean, that's ultimately the end of a contempt citation is, well, either money, and if you don't pay the money, which he wouldn't have paid, then they would have put you in jail. I mean, that's the that's the option. So what you do is you take the you take the contempt, you don't pay the fine. There has to be a fine, and it could be one dollar a day, what has to be some number, and then you appeal that. And usually what happens is even if the court rules against the contemptor, that's what they're called. It's kind of fun, contemptor. Yeah. Even if they rule against the contemptor, they vacate the contempt because it's not done. This is the word contumaciously. Uh, and so that, that, that's a, that's an SAT word if there ever was one. And so, as sure. well, and, and so that's how it got to the appellate court. That's the threshold question. Okay. Now the, let's get to the substance. Dan mentioned West testing. What's this West testing? Now West testing is whole exome sequencing. And what this does is you take the se- you take the person's gene genes, you compare it with their, their closest relatives, their parents in this case, and you try to figure out uh, where in the substance of the genetic material there is a problem or the gene that's causing the problem to the extent there is one. Or if there is a problem, right. Or there is a problem. And the the child in this case has some problem. They don't know what it is. There's a family history of developmental delays. The They did what's called a microchromosome, a chromosomal microarray, which looks and looks for parts of a the gene of the chromosomes that are either missing or duplicated or some just the structure of the genetic material. It didn't find anything. Well, that only finds about fifteen percent of the genetic problems. It's a this much more finds, basic test. It's a much more basic test, and as counsel for the appellee, the defendants below said, they're complementary. You know, you can you could have both. You could have problems with both the structure and the substance. In this case, they didn't find anything wrong with the sub, the structure. There may be problems with the substance. You do them together, you find out the problem. Now, it seems that we don't have the timeline from the oral argument, but it seems that the chi- they did that that uh, testing early on in the child's life and such that this West testing has become far more common to be done. And that's where Dan brought up the novelness of this, which is also implicates Fry and not Dalbert. Dalbert has nothing to do with the novelty. It has to do with the the reliability of the methodology and the, and the soundness right. of the methodology, right. as opposed to whether it's a commonly whether it's generally accepted in the field. Um, and so again, I, I think I think the justice just misspoke and neither and, and the and the lawyers didn't have the heart to correct him is what I think happened. I mean he may be right. I, I don't know what he, his he, he asked it several times. I mean it was not like it was just a passing thing. He kept coming back to it um, for right. both for both advocates. He he did and 
he, his question essentially was, is how should that play into, you know, whether something's, those are deal with admissibility at trial. How should that play into our analysis? Now, Dan mentioned this standard of review, and that's really important because counsel for the appellee just kept coming back to every hypothetical she got and said, you know what? Abuse of discretion, abuse of discretion. Was the trial judge reasonable in what he did? Because while he may be wrong, ultimately, he wasn't unreasonable in ordering the testing. And so that's the, that, that we talked about on episode one, standard of review. And this is one of those cases where standard of review is very deferential to the trial court. So the plaintiff's top line argument is that the plaintiffs aren't parties, or sorry, the parents aren't parties, and that there's no basis to violate their bodily integrity. And essentially, he's arguing a constitutional argument. You can't violate the bodily integrity of somebody who isn't a party, take their blood, and violate their privacy by finding out what their genetic material is. And the defense said, hold it now. They have this claim under the Family Expense Act. Right. And when you're dealing with caring for what appears to be a developmentally delayed or disabled child, those are substantial costs that are being imposed on the plaintiffs. Now, the plaintiffs theory, on, on the plaintiffs, the parents, that is, the plaintiff's theory is that this injury was caused by a hypoxic anoxic event, that during the course of the delivery, the child became, uh, her brain was deprived of oxygen, and that's what caused the developmental delays that she is suffering. The defense says, no, it's caused by something else, and there was a suggestion of a urea cycle disorder, um, though it wasn't clear if that came from the expert report or where that came from. Uh, but that was the the suggestion, and and as I said, the treating physicians had ordered this chromosomal microarray done early on in the child's life. It seemed to try to figure out what the source of it was, and that didn't come up. That came up snake eyes in terms of finding out what the problem was. So the defense has said, no, we think it's genetic a genetic basis, and we want to do the testing. It's a simple blood draw, and then the analysis. You should do it that way. So the defense responded, as I said, with the abuse of discretion. The parents are actually parties. And then th some really tough questions came, and they came in co in in co in in um, consequence of or in response to the defense or the plaintiff saying, "Well, if you rule this way, then I might have a conflict because my plant my clients aren't going to give this test. They may withdraw as the plaintiffs. I may appoint a bank. I may have a conflict between the child as my client and the parents. And you're going to create a big mess. Don't do that." Which is a hell of a threat. But that's essentially what that's what this, not essentially it's what he said, and what the so they asked counsel for the defendant. Well, if they let's suppose a bank or an institutional fiduciary was the plaintiff, could you still get the testing of the parents? And her answer was yes, because the court has the inherent authority to get to the truth, right. and you can't hide behind an institutional fiduciary as a plaintiff in order to prevent me from getting at the truth. Now that hasn't flown in the courts that have addressed this, not in Illinois, but in other states about this inherent authority idea. But that's what, you know, she's like, we got to get to the truth and you're preventing us. You're preventing our defense. Our defense is we didn't, not only didn't we not do, we didn't do this. We didn't do anything because we didn't cause the the genes. And, and, and an argument that like she didn't go, she didn't go this far with it, but I would. And that's this, their, their medical condition is at issue. Right. Because that child got their, her genes from those two people, right. whether they're parties or not, that they, they are um, their medical condition, namely their genes, because there's no other place those genes came from. They didn't come from the the postman. They didn't come from any other place. They came from mom and dad. So mom and dad get you know give it up. Now the the distinction she made was you know what if the child was adopted and 
you know, then in that case, then that's a whole different course, story. They right? have nothing to do. They have nothing to do with it. Their genetic material didn't lead to uh, the child. So that's a different circumstance. So then the plaintiff got asked some tough questions about, well, why should you're objecting to the child even taking it? And he says, I'm objecting to that because their expert said, and he used the word optimal, optimal. to have the the parents provide the gene- the test. And so the, the suggestion that Dan referred to is, well, hold it. We, why don't we send this back? Let the child get the testing. If it comes back and it's enough, then we don't need to bother with this. But if it's not, then we have to consider the issue. And in some of the we read two of the cases that were referred to, this Fisher versus Winding Waters Clinic case from the District Court of Oregon and the Myers versus Intel Corporation from uh, a state court in Delaware. And in I believe it was the Delaware case, the court said, you got to do the testing at the same time for some reason. It wasn't made clear. So it, clear. It, 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 and it may be that's wrong. I'm reading, maybe reading it wrong. Maybe the, the technology has changed since that opinion from Delaware came down. Um, but that wasn't the response from defense counsel. But in that opinion, they said, you got to do the testing all at once. I don't know if that's true or not, but that certainly would be a response why that, that wasn't good. But the response from the defense counsel was, Judge, that may be a very reasonable proposal. No one made it, and the court didn't order it, and it wasn't unreasonable for the trial judge to do this. It wasn't an abuse of discretion. Order him to take the test. Um, the uh, the other thing is that there was a procedural issue. So the plaintiff uh, responded to the motion to compel this test after there was an objection, lost, then the plaintiff filed a motion to reconsider. And on that, they attached a, uh, a report from a geneticist. Yep. And the argument was, is, well, hold it. You didn't raise that on the pr- first motion, first go around. It's waived. You can't consider it. I don't know if, how much weight that – usually that's that's the law. I mean, that's the procedural issue. Uh, we'll see if that is uh, how much weight that carries. It seems that the court really wants to get to the substance of this issue and really get at – that and and they're gonna if they do that they're gonna have to look at the reasonableness or lack of it if they find it by the trial judge. I, I given and if they affirm this and it goes back to the trial court, what happens if plaintiffs say, okay, we're dropping our family expense act claim, we're out. You know, the bank of wherever is going to come in and be the fiduciary. If that kind of stunt, and I'll call it well, I'll, I'll, I think that's a stunt. If that kind of stunt works to try to get out from under this. Cause it'd be pretty obvious what you're trying to do at that point. Heck, he said it at the argument. That's what I might do. And I might have to withdraw from the case because it's going to create a conflict between myself and the parents and their, and the minor child. And I still um, think, I still think the issue is, as you mentioned, is still that the genetics come from these two parents. And so th- that's another hurdle. I think even if they drop the family expense, you know, and it was interesting to me as well. That's as, certainly the argument, the council for Apple said they were going to make. Right. It was also interesting to me, the plaintiff's counsel, I think, uh, maybe stretched the uh, examples a little bit too far in the hypotheticals by saying, well, what if you ordered me to get a blood test? Like that, it's really not relevant because, as you mentioned, if you're adopted or, you know, you're not going to have, you know, the bank's uh, uh, president right, be tested because it has nothing to do with it, right? So I thought this is kind of a strange uh, trail he's going down. It was. Uh, the the court, however, said that uh, they understood that it was a that he was added for emphasis. They understood right, it. he was right. it, it was a, it was a rhetorical flourish. Right. There was also a question, Dan, about uh, that that uh, drew. They asked the question on 
the Apple the appellant's opening argument about, well, what if it's possible that there could be a genetic issue? And the response from counsel for the appellant was, what isn't possible, Your Honor? Right. And, and so it has to be something more than that. And this was in, in the line of questioning about optimal and about really really pushing counsel for appellant on, well, optimal, okay, that doesn't mean you can't do it. It doesn't mean it's not efficacious at all. It just means it's not the best. Uh, does that, is that, is good enough, enough to have, have what is really at the end of the day, a pretty minor, uh, I mean, it's, it is an invasion of their bodily integrity. There's no doubt. It is. But in, in the scheme of things, it's a pretty minor. And they contrasted that with a spinal tap or or something far more or a surgery or something that, that the court wasn't going to countenance. But a blood test, they're like, what's come on? What's the what's the deal? Uh, I don't know how much blood they would need. Maybe it's just as much as you need to take a to take a, a, a test a blood sugar. Maybe it's just that a pinprick. I don't know how much blood they need. It, it, it did not sound like a nap a lot, but again, I'm not a medical expert. But yeah, you know, again, in times where everybody's doing 23andMe, and that's you know, there's all that kind of stuff. You, you know, again, yeah, it, it seems pretty minimal, but you know, you, you wonder if there's something else at play here, other than just the the testing. It, it, you you do wonder, um, but this has been an issue that, as I've said, came up in at least two other cases that were cited. Uh, and in a federal court and a state court, and both cases, they went against the the uh, defense against the defense where they were seeking these tests. And one of them, there was a, the situation was the father was not a party and the court declined to exercise the inherent authority that the court, that the parties asked for. Uh, and so, so we'll see. Uh, but again, the abuse of discretion standard is what will likely carry the day here. Uh, notwithstanding some of the arguments made by counsel for appellant, and he will have to pay the fine. He's not going to jail. This was anything but contumacious. This was a good faith argument, just as it was a good faith argument to ask for the testing in the first instance by by the uh, by the uh, appellees. Um, so, Dan, I, a, a really, really interesting and important case uh, with raises a ton of issues, procedural, substantive, constitutional. Uh, the scope of uh, the court's power, uh, all kinds of, uh, and, and also jurisdictional in the sense of who's a plaintiff. You don't get to ask that question. You know, they're not real plaintiffs. They're just representative plaintiffs was the argument. Well, no, they actually have a money damage because they're the only ones that could collect these monies under under this quirk of Illinois law. So, and for a devel- the care of a developmental chi- developmentally disabled child, those are substantial. Uh, so I, I a very, very important case. I agree. And it also, as you mentioned, with, with the one case where the father was not a party, it, it's it's almost the equivalent of, of forum shopping. It's it's plaintiff shopping in terms of how you structure the, these things going forward, depending on how the ruling comes out, right? If it's if, if only one parent's a party and they only claim the recovery under the family expenses, then is that somehow... They're not a party, so you can't get to them. A lot, lot of very interesting questions raised. Yeah, there. and and I I don't think they're going to have to reach that question because I don't think they have to reach that question unless on Kalal two they do what plaintiffs' counsel suggested they might do, and they might have that. And that time he may find himself with uh, uh, an orange jumpsuit and some house slippers. But uh, the on this one he won't. Uh, right. All right. That with- we'll take a break, and we'll be back with segment three. 
Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at Podium and Panel Podcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three. And Pat, we are now nine zero and two. That's our, what we're saying. That's what we're going that, with. I mean, we're, that's what we're going being with. very charitable, but well, uh, a little bit. But we'll we'll explain those two no contest uh, and predictions sure to go wrong. And last week, a number of cases that we previously covered were decided, and we'll see more of that given that uh, we're getting to spring and summer, and uh, some of the sessions will uh, slow down or 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 stop during the summer. So, uh, the Illinois and Indiana Supreme Courts recently issued opinions in which the plaintiffs won in both cases, but for largely different reasons than had been argued, and those are the two uh, no contests. The first was G&G versus Continental, and the same attorney who argued the NCAA case for the insureds argued for the insureds in this case as well. In G&G, the court reversed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the insurer and held that there was a question of fact as to how a hacker had gained access to the insured system that precluded summary judgment. So this is a no contest in our predictions, as this is the case of the court going its own way, as we had discussed can happen in these appellate cases. Pat, you want to say anything on G&G before we go to Chilino? Well, they, they held, they, they granted summary judgment on the second prong uh, in favor of, uh, of the insured, which was, um, which was interesting to see them do. Um, and as we'll talk about, I'll talk about after Cialino, what these two cases really have in common that is very, very strange. Why don't you yep. take Cialino now, Dan? And Cialino versus Simon, this was the murder in the park case. The court affirmed the reversal of the dismissal and the defamation case arising out of the murder in the park movie, uh, not based upon application of the discovery rule, but because the 2015 screening of the film in Chicago within one of the filings was a separate publication. Within one year, was it within one year of the filing? Within one year of the filing. Uh, was a separate publication of the alleged defamation and the 2016 filing was this timely, another no contest for us. And so, Pat, why don't you tell us about, you know, your, your thoughts? Yeah, so so we've said, and I think generally is true, almost always is true, that the that high courts, whether they're the United States Supreme Court or they are state Supreme Courts, are policy courts. They're looking at the big picture. They're looking at what are other going to happen in other cases. We even see you even see that in the argument in the Kel Al case. They're like, we got to worry about what's going to happen in the next case. We can't just worry about this case, right? Um, but in both of these cases, the they acted as courts of correcting error. These were things that should have been caught by the appellate courts. A failure, a grant, improperly granting summary judgment—that's what appellate courts are for, right? Not a pro- properly applying the single the single publication rule. That's an appellate court. It's what's supposed to do that. And I think what happened is the courts, the appellate courts got caught up on the big policy question. And you wouldn't have expected, usually Supreme Courts look the other way when the lower court, the lower appellate court just gets it wrong. That usually isn't a reason, except the exceptions are, of course, were death penalty cases when we had those. Right. Um, but usually, if, two, if it's all going to do is going to cost someone some money, eh, we don't really care. 
Um, so that's re- that was now I don't know at what stage they realized this. It plainly wasn't at issue in certainly not the Cialino argument. Right. Not a whiff that we think you people have this entirely wrong. And understand the Illinois Supreme Court has a tremendous amount of tools at its disposal under the Illinois Constitution to order. They could have summarily reversed. They could have ordered, they could have issued what's called a supervisory order and go tell the appellate court to review this under this doctrine. They didn't have to hear all this. So we'll never know, or if we do find out, it'll be decades from now when someone's papers get released as to what really happened here. But they they went a completely different direction from where the parties were pointing and what you thought was going to be argued. What well, one, uh, one thought I had on that. Or be decided, I should say. It's potentially with some of the new uh, Supreme Court justices on the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, the the one that replaced Kilbright for sure was an appellate judge for for many years. So maybe maybe some of that flavor came into it that they're looking at it through those lenses still, or maybe just a new mix of 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 players. I don't know. Or it could be just that they couldn't agree on the policy question, and someone realized there was another way out, right. and they said, we'll take this out, and by the way, we'll give some more clarity. Would they spend a lot, Justice Garman's opinion in Cialino gives a lot of context and gives more opi- or more f- meat on the bone for this single publication rule, and, or separate publication rule, and, and that's helpful, but it certainly isn't what anyone was looking for, uh, no. not what we thought we were going to get. No. So um, a... Uh, courts doing things we don't expect them to do. Thus, prediction sure to go wrong, but no contendere because no one saw they 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 answer questions different than what we were answering. So there we go. Right. Uh, with that, Dan, uh, why don't you talk about cats versus hearts? Sure. This was a, a case about when a statute of limitations began to run for the plaintiff in a guardian case, and uh, we correctly predicted the court would reverse and and find that uh, the uh, statute started to run, uh, you know, based upon discovery of of when the, the the mistakes took place. Well, the court the court held like it did in the G and G case. There was a question of fact, and this was an appellate court doing what appellate courts do and simply say the stand. As I think we've said before, a granting of a motion for summary judgment or a motion to dismiss of this kind is the highest the highest standard in the law. It's as a matter of law. It is higher than beyond a reasonable doubt, and so. They held. We don't. We're not making a judgment on whether the now they make a point of this that the uh, the the appellant here, the now guardian of the testator, is a lawyer, and they make a point of what he knew or should have known. And I imagine that they will look at that in light of the fact that he is a lawyer, uh, and and what he knew and when he knew it and when he should have known it and when he was, should have started asking questions and these kinds of things. Based upon the dates, which we got more of out of the opinion than we had at the oral argument, I, I, that deposition seemed to have occurred of the lawyer where he said, I didn't ask, I didn't do the testamentary, uh, testamentary capacity test during the, um, uh, during my time when I wrote the, uh, or you know, changed the will that seemed to have occurred during the two years it did. Uh, after he became the guardian. So I, I, I think he's going to have some splaining to do. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to be successful ultimately. Um, I have real questions. Uh, the I timeline did didn't quite make sense to me. Uh, if the deposition didn't occur until 
after two years from the date of him being a guardian, that would be one thing. But I think it occurred during the two years. I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, I apologize. But I, I think I'm right. And But in any event, they reversed and said it's a question of fact. They the, the interesting thing here and what we got wrong in this is I thought for sure Judge Mikva, Justice Mikva, I should say, was going to be a dissent or something. She wrote the opinion. So, you know, we can't predict uh, we, we can't predict who's going to write the opinion. She wrote the opinion and, in, into which the other two justices joined, in, including uh, Justice Co- Justice Collins, who was very vocal in her based upon her experience in the uh, probate. Probate. Court, right. And uh, was incredulous at some of the answers that she got from counsel for the uh, the appellee, the, the, the defendants below. So we will uh, we will see. Uh, what happens? Because I think we'll see this case again. Uh, I think it's coming back a couple of years from now. Um, and with that, we'll go to Zuniga versus Major League Baseball. Another correct call. Uh, they they affirmed the uh, denial of the motion to compel arbitration. And I, I want to uh, and found that the arbitration clause on the back of your ticket to a baseball game that isn't on the back of a ticket of a, to a baseball game, but is on some website and you can go to section one Oh three. And you know, that was unconscionable. Uh, that's not a surprise based upon the oral argument, which has potentially big implications for major league baseball. And just before opening day, isn't that convenient? Right. What's interesting here is we said that this was appealed based upon the grant or denial of an injunction under rule three Oh seven, which by the way, ladies and gentlemen, is the same rule under which the court had appellate jurisdiction in the Kalal versus Lions case, exactly. uh, it's, it's the grant or denial of a of a of an injunction. I believe it's under the same general rule that allows you to appeal such things. Uh, we're creative here in Illinois, people. Well, we, we know are. how to get things to the appellate court, which is why so many things are appealed. That's right. You want to take Maine, Dan? Sure. This was the case on deliberate encounter issues, and it uh, and found for the plaintiffs at the lower level, and uh, the court affirmed in that case as we had predicted. Uh, this was the case where the guy had gone with his truck and got out of the truck, and then uh, there was open and obvious uh, conditions, and uh, there was talk about whether or not he had to move up three feet or six feet. And uh, but but the uh, an ADM was asking for a, a real change in the law, and the court gave them uh, the, a hard stiff arm to say, "No, no, we're not going to we're not going to make a new law." Uh, change the law here. This is not how the law goes. You guys are reading the case wrong. This Lefevre case, you're reading it wrong. Um, and, and they did what they had to do. Uh, right. And they also found that the the verdict, though high, wasn't uh, you know didn't shock the conscience or wasn't outside the realm of uh, of what was reasonable. Uh, the and jury. We, did. We, yeah, we we talked about that, and and we thought it was a, a high hurdle for ADM to get over that. Uh, and we didn't think that the court would go there. And like you said, the game is stiff arm. And finally, in Bennett versus AFSCME, we, we discussed this case with Jeffrey Schwab on episode 11. Uh, the court here found that Bennett, who had paid dues and then after Janice uh, tried to stop, uh, she could not recover her dues. Uh, the Seventh Circuit here, here held there is nothing in the Janus decision that would invalidate the union membership agreement Bennett signed before the high court handed down the landmark ruling. Noting other appeals courts have come to similar conclusions. And this was a case where there was, I think it's a 15-day or 45-day period right before uh, the beginning of each year where you have an opt-out provision. And uh, Jeffrey talked in great detail about the procedural details on our special episode that that we had. 
And Dan, oh, he also mentioned that there's another, um, you know, because their overall legal strategy is ultimately going to be they're going to have to get this to the Supreme Court, which means they're going to have to convince one of the circuits to disagree with now the third, ninth, and seventh, now seventh circuits that have disagreed with their legal theory following Janus. And he mentioned that they may have grown tired of union cases, except for Cedar Point versus Hasid, uh, which is going to be argued next Tuesday or Monday, rather, the 22nd. And we are going to have a special episode with one of the lawyers uh, from the Pacific Legal Foundation, Wen Fa, is going to join us on the 25th, Thursday. Uh, that episode will be posted uh, thir- early Thursday evening after we speak with Mr. Fa. Um, he's not the lawyer who's arguing the case, but he's one on the, on the team of lawyers that represent the property owner. This is a case where California has a law that allows union organizers to go on the property three days a week, or sorry, three days a, a year, rather. I misspoke, three days a year. Right. And the argument is that is a Fifth Amendment, ta- an uncompensated Fifth Amendment taking uh, of the property of the farmers in California. We'll see how that goes for uh, the um, appellants in that case who are the landowners whose land is allegedly being taken. Uh, and so that's, look forward to that on Thursday evening. Uh, very excited to have uh, these special episodes with the advocates who have argued these cases or are involved in handling these uh, these these cases. Yeah, they're they're great because we get to go into greater detail and hear from the actual advocates and some of their strategy and some of the things like we learned uh, last week uh, in the Corey case that aren't in the record and and gives us more context for why things went the way they did or why certain things weren't talked about, et cetera. So it'll be very interesting to talk to Wenfa. And I guess that brings us to our rule of the week, Dan. Um, do you want to introduce this issue? Oh, before we do it, should we make predictions sure to go wrong for the two cases today? I guess I we know. should. Yeah, um, I don't know that we officially did that. So No, we didn't. Uh, so NCAA versus, I'll just call it insurers. Uh, are, are, who, who's going who's gonna to win the bracket? You know, I, I, I think that this may be our first disagreement, as we talked about in the short break. I think uh, that the insurers in this case are, are going to uh, have, a, have a tough time with the related, although based on the pollution exclusion, I think uh, uh, it would go that way. But I, I just think from the oral arguments and some of the pushback from the, from the panel, uh, from the justices, that uh, we, may, we may see a surprise here and say that you can't relate everything back to each other. I, I, I think there's going to be an affirmance. I, I, I think that they, um, I don't know how they aren't related. Um, there are things that were unrelated. Uh, you know, for example, the time the NCAA tried to restrict basketball coaches, uh, the other things that they have done that wouldn't have been related, even though they were of the antitrust variety. This was compensation to players. It was an alleged antitrust violation. I, I think they're related I think there's an affirmance, assuming the court even takes the case. That's um, that's true, and you're you're probably right. I'm just thinking of more the temporal, like you know, th- does it expand forever? So 100 years from now, another NCAA antitrust case that relates back to 2000. Well, it would have to be a claims. It would have to be a claim. That's part of it being a claims made policy. It's right. part of it, it, it. There, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts there, and there's also it's not like they're without insurance. As it came up, it was unclear to me how that happened, but they still have five million dollars in coverage available for defense costs, it seemed alone, uh, from the previous policy. So it's not like the NCAA is without, without any uh, ability to protect themselves, uh, as if the NCAA doesn't have enough, enough bank to go, you know, in in any event. Yep. 
I guess that brings us to Cal-Al versus uh, Lions. Uh, Dan, uh, did he abuse his discretion? I don't think he abused his discretion. I think it's a very hard uh, to, to overcome that. I, I, I think so, and I think that the court is going to steer well clear of the policy questions because they aren't implicated. I agree. Um, I think they're going to not want to wade into things they don't have to decide. Courts usually only want to decide the things they have to decide. And I think this is going to be one of those times where they do just that and say, and I would imagine in a relatively short opinion, he didn't abuse his discretion. Uh, but uh, it may not have been what we we would do. Um, yep, right. So, and with that, Dan, uh, rule of the week. Um, yeah, our, our rule of the week, we talked about it a few weeks ago. It's a return to the Prejudgment Act sitting on Governor Pritzker's desk. And there was a potential amendment to it that was filed. Pat, you had written about it on LinkedIn that it was akin to putting lipstick on a pig. In your daily law bulletin column, you wrote about opposition to the amendment and to the prejudgment interest to begin with. So why don't you tell us about the amendment and what your thoughts are on, you know, how it might improve it, but still is, is, is still not good for uh, defense in particular in Illinois. So Dan, um, the lipstick on a pig uh, analogy wasn't just a coincidence. This is the uh, the sausage gets made in in Illinois. It does. Um, So at 3 a.m., at the end of a lame duck session, at the behest of a now disgraced and retired House Speaker as a sop to the plaintiff's bar, they passed a onerous prejudgment interest bill and sent it to the governor. At the time that it was passed and since, until this past week or so, it was believed that that was a lead pipe lock. He was going to sign it. Now, he wasn't happy about it. He had expressed it publicly. He wasn't happy about it. Then it became clear he was going to veto it. And then the horse trading started. Now, well, all the, and we have all the farm animals coming up today. You know, uh, The horse trading started. And there was House uh, Amendment 1 to Senate Bill 72. So naturally, if you're going to deal with a prejudgment interest bill, you amend a, de- a bill that passed out of the Senate about electronic probate, electronic wills, because of course. So they got that that's bill. A, that, 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 by the way, is another common thing in Illinois that drives anyone that deals with legislation crazy because they, they put in these bills and then they replace them. And, and it's, like you said, it, it has nothing to do with one or the other. And, and so it's just there's a, a germaneness requirement. There's a germaneness requirement in the Constitution. <laughs> that's, just, that's merely a suggestion, people. One topic, eh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Three readings, eh. <laughs> Um, so in any event, so HA1 gets, gets considered by the executive committee of the house. And what it does is it would amend the bill, but only if the governor signs 3360 and it would reduce, it reduced the interest rate from 9% to 7% and did some other things that were cosmetic. And the governor apparently was unmoved. So I'm still vetoing it. So then they came up with H house amendment two, Now house amendment two assumes he's going to veto it and it stands alone and it says we're going to impose interest and it's the the new bill so the so the new bill and that might be a subject of my column that's coming out on Wednesday which by that point it may have gotten to the governor and now I'm just going to be arguing for him to veto this too this newest bill um it's 6% interest it imposes it it limits when the uh 
it, it provides for a settlement procedure. It caps interest at five years. It, uh, it, it does a number of things uh, that are better. But if it had been the original proposal, it would still be horrible. It only looks good in view of how bad the first thing was from the perspective of, 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 of someone being fair-minded. Now, the plaintiff's bar has argued other states have this and all kinds of arguments that they've made. Some have more, have more merit than others. But the reason why we've come back to this and talked about this again is because this is a substantial change to Illinois civil practice. It will substantially whether you like it or don't like it, you have to admit it's going to change things. Right. Uh, and so that's why we've come back to it. It's unknown what the governor will do. Um, it's It seems possible that he would sign this after having, and it seems that he's going to veto the first bill. He has until, I believe, April 5th to veto 3360. If he doesn't, then it becomes law. So it's likely he's going to veto that, which is what led to this. The the Senate will get the new bill, HA2, to Senate Bill 72, which because they had already passed it, even in a prior form, it's an up or down. They can't make any amendments. There's no conference. It's just a motion to concur. And then it would go to the go- and then it would be sent to the governor thereafter. Yes. So that's uh the that's the sausage getting made in Illinois. And um and with that, Dan, I think we are done at a very uh, a whole whole range of things we've had the opportunity to discuss this week. Uh, a lot of fun as always. Yep. Listen, listen to uh, look forward to our episode on Thursday about the Cedar Point case. It's not about roller coasters. And check out Thomas versus Corey special episode that we released, episode sixteen with Ed Grisey and Christopher Willis. Uh, I, I think one of our best interviews we've had. More about Christopher and Ed than us on uh, the Thomas versus Corey case. And with that, I'm Pat Eckler for Dan Cotter saying thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.